I fundamentally like believe that design is a way of learning. It's a way of learning about the world and how people are interacting, how people are feeling. There we get to belonging again already. Like, what's the feeling that you have? So we know that um, that spaces and contexts, right, shape our feelings, and design is the thing that helps to do that. And so, bringing the kind of the helping educators as well as others think about what was designed. That's really powerful. How are you feeling in this particular space or in this particular experience? What was designed to make you feel that, right? Was it the space? Was it a role? Was it the rituals? I would like to welcome us all to the Wonder Podcast. I am CCB, your host. And today, in a series of conversations around design for connection, we are very fortunate to have uh, an, a, an accomplished educator and uh, a lifelong learner, I'm going to say, around design for belonging, Susie Wise. And so I would like to first say welcome, Susie. Hi, thanks. Thanks for having me. And, and I would love for you to take a little bit of time and explain your journey through education and design because we're going to link those things together but you have a, a very interesting background and however much of you, you'd like to share we'd love to hear sure okay great um so yeah it's a meandering path that brought me really to design i was meant to be in politics um, worked on the hill um during college and was meant to go there at the last minute i decided i didn't want that path and I didn't know really what I wanted. That led me to move out to the Bay Area where I started working in education, um, thought about becoming a teacher and never, never pulled the trigger on that, um, but worked with a bunch of different projects that went into schools and learning environments and found that I really liked that ability to work with educators, but not be the one standing there in front of the classroom, um, you know, 24 seven or however, however many days a week you have to do it these days. Um, and that led me to fall into um, some work in, the, in HIV and AIDS education, which led me to the Exploratorium. I was really fascinated with museums as a context for learning. And while doing some work with the Exploratorium, I also fell into kind of the early days of what we now call EdTech, but then we would have called just edutainment or CD-ROMs. So early CD-ROMs, I became a game designer and did early work in that space. Um, that led me to work at SFMOMA, um, where I was the senior producer for interactive educational technologies. And so that was our work really thinking about all the different ways we could use emerging media to help visitors think about their experience with art um, in the museum. And we were particular, and so we did experiments in the early days, you know, with handhelds. This is pre-iPhone, of course, and different ways that museums um, could use their space, their collection, and technology. What was happening at that intersection? That led me to um, pursue my doctorate in learning sciences and technology design at Stanford, where I fell into the early days of what would become the D School. Um, I took the series of courses that product designers took as part of my doctoral work and um, really discovered that design thinking was actually kind of the way that I had been working without knowing it. I was never a formally trained designer. 
Um, but my interest in kind of reaching out to visitors, for instance, at the museum and working with children when we were designing children's games um, was kind of this very human-centered approach to really understanding what people needed for their learning experiences. And then I also had just this orientation towards moving quickly and doing prototypes, um, which is another real hallmark of human-centered design. So those pieces of empathy and prototyping when I saw David Kelly, my very first quarter at Stanford, kind of lay out a design thinking process, I was like, wow, that's, that, that's me, that's it, that's it. Um, and so I became involved in the early days on the early teaching teams when we started the D-School. Um, and as part of that, really you know, got grounded as an educator in that context, but also found that I really wanted to um, get back to the roots of thinking about K-12 education um, since I had done a bunch of work in that arena and so founded the K-12 lab for the D-School and led a bunch of our work there that just led in all kinds of different directions, working on spaces, working on curriculum, working with school leaders, um, and really rich um, context to think about how design could help with innovation in the in learning spaces. That has led me to a Yes. No, I'm just, okay. oh, you, that has hey, led you to. Yeah, yeah. So I'm now a freelance designer and I'm really focused very much on this topic of belonging and the intersection of design and belonging and how do we use design for things that really matter. Um, and in particular, this, this idea of belonging. How can we use it? I've done a, a fair amount of work in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space. And as I started doing work with that with school leaders and other educators, um, sometimes saw that folks were situating themselves in a way that diversity, equity, and inclusion was kind of being reified as let's do DEI. And of course, that is incredibly important work. But I found that for some folks then it kind of got locked in a box. And it wasn't, um, they weren't using all of their creativity necessarily to, to approach it. And so what I found is taking up this notion of belonging, which I want to give full credit to, I um, learned of it through my mentor, Victor uh, Carey at National Equity Project, and particularly drawing on the work of John Powell at Berkeley, and what used to be called the Haas um, Institute for a Fair and Inclusive Society is now called the Othering and Belonging Institute. So Powell and his colleagues really help us think about belonging as what we are seeking to do as we take up um, civil rights, as we take up greater inclusion across contexts. That belonging is the thing that we're going for, and that othering is the thing that humans do that we are working against. Um, and so belonging is this powerful way to think about this is what we're really trying to create in, in our groups, in our communities, um, and to your word, connection, right? Belonging is a way to understand the kind of connection that we're looking for in our learning environments and in, you know, in other structures um, in our communities. So that's, uh, that's a life in a you know, two to three minute uh, description, which is completely unfair. And there were so many, uh, there's so many pieces of your path that we'd love to spend a little bit more time talking about. And the first one that I, that comes to mind because of our world is 
the connection between place and people and how design, and you're using design in a very broad sense, uh, which is the, the most wonderful because is, you know, is it, is it in our design? Is it of our design? But how do, how does your experience frame your perspective on place and the connection to the people and the belonging? Yeah. Um, well, I'll say that I think, I mean, a piece of it for me was that I was a quirky learner as a kid and I was always seeking to bust out of the actual classroom um, and work in other spaces, which is partly why I think kind of game design and museums as learning contexts were so intriguing to me kind of in my early career. And I saw when I got introduced kind of to the formal process of design thinking, I, that felt like the thing that would have appealed to me as an eighth grader. If I could have used design to organize my thinking and my work and my projects, wow, that really resonated with me. And that's what led to our founding of the K-12 lab was thinking about how could the design thinking process really be something that educators, all kinds of educators, not just arts educators, right? Not just people that were deeply entrenched in project-based learning, but all kinds of educators take up design as an approach to learning. And I fundamentally like believe that design is a way of learning. It's a way of learning about the world and how people are interacting, how people are feeling. There we get to belonging again already. Like what's the feeling that you have? So we know that, um, that spaces and contexts, right, shape our feelings. And design is the thing that helps to do that. And so bringing the kind of, the helping educators as well as others think about what was designed, that's really powerful. How are you feeling in this particular space or in this particular experience? What was designed to make you feel that, right? Was it the space? Was it a role? Was it the rituals? Like what were the kinds of things were created? And so I love getting to work with people on just kind of opening up that lens to see what was designed and how it's making you feel. And then there's the important piece and this can get very political or stay political, but like you can write your, um, you're in the space where then you can say, what was designed that's really causing harm and how can we redesign it? Because once we recognize that even our systems of oppression were designed, right, to create the outcomes that they're creating, we can actually fundamentally say, well, no, let's stop and do and invest in that redesign work. That becomes mm-hmm. really important. And then I think the participatory nature of kind of a human-centered design approach is, is really helpful there as well. One of the, um, the concepts that we had been exploring in our, the, whole, the, the broadest sense of design for connection uh, was creating meaning through connection through the redefinition of physical and virtual. And you have been speaking yeah. to that in, uh, in the game design and in the uh, almost museum design. But when you think about what's the furthest out that, that redefinition of physical and virtual, or how is it coming together in what you're working towards at this moment in time? That's a great question. Um, I mean, where my head goes right now, because we are speaking in this moment of COVID times with lockdown and we're speaking on Zoom and we might've done this in person. Um, it's like, it feels that much more urgent that we not just let ourselves, right, get sucked only into the virtual. 
Um, so there's this interesting moment now where I think there's the real opportunity to remind everybody that as we zoom in, right, in our Zoom land, that we are human beings. I mean, so fundamentally, right, we have to recognize not only are we in our broader environments, but we're in our bodies, right? And that interaction of our bodies in space um, really matters. And I feel like I might have slightly lost the thread of your question. No, but, no, no. I mean, I think, uh, yeah. yeah. Your, your, it's your answer, which I think is, uh, you know, is important. And, um, but it, it was through the, the conversation and all of the work that you've been doing that, again, your path keeps weaving you towards, you know, a greater understanding and kind of a linking of those two in a yeah. way that I would give, I would give you credit for. Yeah, yeah, no, I think, I think it's really interesting. I mean, and it takes me back to kind of you know, museum-based work, but also classroom-based work, the D-School, is that you're always, I mean, and, and even from just a fundamental design perspective of like, let's use all the tools that we have available. Let's not over-index on one just because it's the hot new thing, right? Museums and other learning environments are really interesting spaces in which to explore that because, right, if you're looking at a 100-year-old piece of art and you're wanting to, like, make it relevant to the tools of the day, you're automatically thinking, right, both of space, what's happening in this, you know, the architecture of the museum, et cetera, and all the things that come with that from a kind of societal lens and the privilege and power to have that collection, et cetera, et cetera. And also who I am, any person looking at thing is, from my opinion, is perfectly, like I'm interested in their own experience of that. And that's an embodied experience where they're bringing their own right? Their history, their experiences to that. And then it's not just happening there, right? It's the then as I walk out of the museum and now I'm in an urban environment or wherever I am, what, what other, how is that experience that I just had kind of bouncing off against um, the, the art that I just saw? How's it bouncing against this experience that I'm not having out on the street, right? And that we, that's a kind of a, a way to think expansively about what learning experiences are is are all those juxtapositions that you as a learner, you as a human being in, in your body are having and holding. Right. So I, there's been any number of articles. Internal to One Workplace, we've been having a number of conversations about uh, the classroom as an ecosystem. And, and if you look at learning in the ecosystem, then where what are the types of, of specific environments that support different types of learning within that whole classroom ecosystem. But the whole COVID experience now, there have been any number of articles about taking learning outside yeah. and bringing it back to, uh, you know, a, a balance between the inside and the outside experience. And you kind of started walking us towards that. And w in your mind, where, where else can that possibly go? Yeah, well, I think that's, um, I mean, I think you can go in a lot of different directions. One, one way to think about it is participatory design. Like, who are you actually designing with? Who are all the people outside of your own context that you're having the opportunity to work with? Then flipping totally to the other side, been thinking a lot about the role of nature and being in your body as a way to think not just about belonging, but also about creativity. Right, which is like fundamentally, I think part of what I care about in my work is how to 
help people build their own creative confidence, right? And their own creative agency, really. Um, and so in this Zoom world, like the importance of walking out on the street and seeing whatever it is that you see, it might be a flower, it might be a piece of trash, it might be a neighbor, it might be a, you know, a large building, whatever it is. How do you look at that and, and, and bring that back then to your next conversation in Zoom? So in some of the work that I do, I do a fair amount of teaching still in the context of the D school um, in some of our executive education programs. So that's the context of thinking about people that are coming from different kinds of corporations and also social sector organizations. How can they take up the practices of design thinking? And we're, you know, we're doing that in this moment in Zoom. And we're really carefully designing into the flows of those days and those chunks of time, both time to um, go out and seek inspiration from the world and also time to then be on Zoom and be collaborating with people that are from around the world. Um, mm -hmm. And then importantly, like I, I think in all of this work, we also have to remember too, the importance of, of rest, right? One of the things that we know about creativity is that when you turn away from your project, right, is oftentimes when you have some, some really interesting thoughts about what you might bring to it. That's not the only way. I'm not proposing that it's like you walk away and then you get hit by the lightning bolt. I am proposing, though, that you walk away and rest and your brain releases a bit and you have other thoughts. Right, which is um, just as important as getting to like work really hard and also to get outside and seek new kinds of inspiration. So working mm -hmm. a lot with like, how do you just, how do you build that into the, the, the rhythm of a day where your collaboration might be happening on Zoom, but a lot of it you wanna be stepping aside. You also wanna be bringing in, like I'm sitting here with a background of purses um, which, you know, people on the listening to the podcast aren't going to see, but I have this background of purses that I've collected from over my life and that people have given to me from, you know, even from times before I was alive. Um, and I use those, right, to bring into conversations that I'm having with people. And everybody has something that they can pick up, whether it's like they're, you know, a random tchotchke on their desk or just to, to tell the story of the pen that they're using. Right, so that we remind ourselves that we're not just these digital representations, but we are embodied in the world and that really matters. That then can help us, I think, get back to then designing those spaces in more interesting ways so that they serve us in those conversations. Well, the idea of incorporating the story and all the stories, all people's stories, and how do you create a space that is open enough and engaging and accepting enough so that all stories are valid and all stories, you know, can be heard? I mean, I think yeah. that's a gigantic challenge. But I wanted to um, to steer us a little bit towards the, your design for belonging. And I yeah. think um, belonging, and it was curious i love going back and doing i have a master's in history which has absolutely you know little or nothing to do with anything that i do however it is that that uh ongoing curiosity yeah. about trying to understand and i looked up the word belonging and do you know over time the the use of the word belonging from the 1800s down to they had it up to 2010 and i couldn't find it further but it's been decreasing in use Interesting. In a fascinating, you know, lowering curve uh -huh. um, up to 2010. Now, I would, I would posit perhaps, you know, there's been an increase now yeah. over the last decade in, uh -huh. in, in using that, that word. However, uh, the, you know, the Merriam-Webster dictionary uh, definition of belonging doesn't have as much to do with the feeling. 
uh-huh. as uh-huh. as your use of you know belonging has yeah. evolved. And yeah. I'd love you to spend a little bit of time when you say belonging means more than just being seen. Uh-huh. Belonging yeah. means dot dot dot. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think, so I, I do think it is multiple, right? So it is more than just being seen. It is get, being, and here again, like honoring the work of John Powell and others, but being able to fully participate, right? And that means not, that means showing up as who you are. That means being able to contribute, right? What you are, who you are, what your skills and strengths are what your questions are. It also means being able to make demands and dissent, right? Um, and I don't have the quote in front of me, but that, that make demands piece, I think is a, um, a critical piece from John Powell. But d- the role of dissent, how is that a measure of a community where there is real belonging, that we can actually hear what is and isn't working for people in a community. That is, I think, a powerful, if not definition of belonging, a measure of belonging that I think is important to think about. I think there are other, and, and I, I like to call these out as some of the moments of belonging. How do you, what, what are the experiential moments where we may or may not feel belonging? So there's that being invited into a context entering a context, what's that kind of, even in spatial terms, what's the threshold, right? These are both literal things and they're also figurative things, right? Um, And they speak volumes. So one of the things that I've been doing as I've been exploring belonging is having other people tell me what belonging is to them. And usually that's through some kind of a story. Often it's a story first of a time when you didn't feel belonging. Um, and that is really powerful. So when you entered a new context and you weren't sure and you're, you were in the right place. So even like a wayfinding kind of scenario, right? Like, am I in the right place? Like that tends to not feel like a, a great sense of belonging. It might not be all the way to the extreme of feeling others, right? But it is um, not necessarily a, a profound moment of belonging. And so thinking about moments, those those entering kind of moments, and then also like the sense of, um, what are the deeper engagement moments? How can you actually participate in different ways? What is it to contribute again? What is and then and then those deeper things of like actually getting to dissent and and recognizing that everyone's participation in any given community isn't going to be the same, right? And that that's okay. And then that gets us to remember too that belonging is not a zero sum game. We don't all belong in this, right? Have the same feeling of belonging in uh, uh, across all of our contexts, right? We are always, we always carry with us multiple identities and, and our feelings of belonging may go along with that. I think that the reason that I really wanna call forth belonging as a feeling is because I do think it has this embodied piece to it that we wanna hold on to. Well, I would, I would definitely agree. And I would say, you know, just the use of language over time it it uh, it represents the context of the time, uh-huh. the language you know, and so yeah. language, the evolution of language, I, I find fascinating because it is picking up reference and context from the time that it is being spoken, yeah. um, which is also I think a 
another fascinating, fascinating study, um, but yeah. that's not where we're going. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, um, no, I was going to ask about uh, if, if you would share a little bit about your current work and what's most exciting to you at this time. Sure. Yeah. Um, so two ways to talk about it. One is I, I'm working on a book project, which is um, a way to share a lot of different voices who speak to belonging. So I've mentioned Don Powell and Victor Carey, but also people like Brene Brown, who talks about right, her understanding of true belonging, kind of from a psychological sense and how you carry that with you. Folks like Bell Hooks, but also educators that I know, outdoor educators um, and curriculum designers who are working on diversity, equity, and inclusion, um, curriculum work, uh, bringing their voices forward so we get the sense, kind of to your point of the, how the definition changes, what are all the different voices on what belonging can mean right now? Because um, in some ways, my approach to design is very much, and, and maybe partially because I'm not a, you know, an officially trained designer in a particular discipline of design, for me, a lot of my approach to design is about bringing together different voices. It's also about bringing together then different tool sets. So one of the things that I think about, I mentioned the, the kind of moments of belonging, I like helping people think about how to lay out the different moments that their organization or their learning experience that they're designing kind of represents or holds within it and how they can tune any of those different moments of belonging, whether it is that kind of entry experience or deeper engagement or something further kind of downstream that kind of also talk about kind of like the dance, right? What is it when you're in a context and you really feel, right, that feeling of belonging is flowing. And I don't mean a literal dance, but figuratively, what's that dance like? Um, so sharing kind of the, those frameworks of those moments really helps people to think about the context in which they're designing um, in some interesting ways. And then the next piece is, is really talking concretely about the levers of design. Um, how do you think about what are the concrete things that you can design and then test? Did this create more belonging? And by the way, for whom? And for whom did it create more othering, right? And, and who was that, right? And are there patterns related to that that we should investigate um, from an equity perspective? Um, or are there, you know, is there some other way to understand it? So thinking about levers of design, and of course, there, um, you know, space, huge lever of design for belonging, role, ritual, other things too, though, like communications in the education space where, you know, I've had a bunch of experience. Communication is like the overly relied on, um, lever of design, right. And, and many organizations, right. If we can do it in an email, isn't that, isn't that good enough? Um, but thinking beyond that too, to things like food and gatherings and affinity groupings, right. Events. These are all things that we can concretely design and really look to see whether they're helping to promote belonging or not. So from my perspective, my work at Design for Belonging is to help show kind of these different layers of design and how they intersect with belonging so that people can take that up and investigate. And that way, I guess I'm like still very much an educator in the sense of wanting to open up toolkits for people. Um, so I'm doing some of that in the context of the book. And then I've been working on a city um, I, I'm thinking of it in the context of cities, and it could be communities of different scales, but a community-based design toolkit to help folks 
And this could be, you know, could be the mayor that raises their hand, but could also be a neighbor who says, you know, I want to work on belonging on my block. Um, a toolkit for folks to come together and maybe they're coming together on Zoom, maybe they're coming together in, with nice physical distance in a park um, to share some of their own stories of belonging and point to then, are there some places in their community, again, at whatever scale, where they think there isn't great belonging or there isn't belonging for some groups. And right in this powerful moment of kind of the resurgence of, of Black Lives Matter and a real new conversation, I think belonging can play a role um, because it is a felt experience that almost everyone has had, feeling belonging or not, everyone can share some kind of a story and it makes for a really great way to step into the conversation and then build from there with more of a toolkit of what are the things that you can design and how can you kind of from a learning perspective try things and learn from them. That's of course, right, the, the prototyper in me um, and the believer that we have to, to get to big change, we have to start small and try things and see what happens, right? And we do that in the, that has to be, um, and here I'm air quoting, that has to be safe to fail. We can't try things that are gonna do harm to people, but we can try things in a kind of enough of a low resolution way, a rapid way that we could actually build a little bit of momentum and really learn from them and point in the right direction. And so I'm excited about that work. That's pretty new work for me. And so I'm working um, in a number of different cities um, in the US um, and, and um, testing out this kind of new toolkit to see what kinds of groups um, can, can really use it and where they can get to with it. I think that's, uh, we all think it's, you know, really exciting. Uh, and I think the timing could not be more perfect given the fact that there is, there is uh, emerging interest and passion towards hearing more stories. Yeah. And there's a word that keeps coming up to, in my mind, that I don't know, I, I'm going to put it out here and say, how do we feel about it or how does it fit into the work that you're doing? Culture. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, um, I've been doing a lot of work on culture, um, a little bit more in the corporate space um, with my uh, business partner, Jill Violet from Playworks. Um, and culture really matters and culture is hard to take on as a monolith, right? And so it, it brings, um, and culture, my belief about culture is that culture happens every day. Right, the culture is all the way, the small ways that we interact, the small ways that we design our context, that is what builds culture. So if you believe, like I do, that culture happens every day, it's not just one person, like diversity, equity, and inclusion work, culture work, right, is not just one person's job, you can't just have a culture czar, right, it's everyone's job, and you have to be able to open it up enough so that people have ways into it, right? Because you can't just sit down and have a meeting to, to work on culture. You can sit down and have a meeting that you know is about culture and start to share some stories about what is and isn't working and what you might want to take up to create some change. And that's where, right? And so some of the moments I think are very much these important cultural moments, but taking a moment is much easier than taking culture um, and then it's really powerful then 
to work with the levers of design, again, the full range of them, whether it's right, space, role, ritual, food, communication, right, events, et cetera, to, to think about what's a thing that I can try and did it, did it move us in the direction that we wanted it to, right? If we're trying to build a culture of greater belonging, and that might be for specific subgroups or that might be for a cross, we want to see like who did it work for and why, what about it worked, right? And so that's that, that way of just from the very beginning, for me, design is a way of learning. It's a way of learning about what's important, right? And so it is, uh, we set ourselves up to try small things, to see how they work, right? And to then, and then to move from there. It, oh, wow, that didn't feel good at all. Okay, let's try something else. Maybe with a different lever of design, maybe with a different configuration of who's working on it or who's generating the ideas. Um, that, that moves us towards learning about what we really want to learn about. And, and I think that's the only way to work on culture is that kind of an iterative cycle of constant learning because it's being built every day. Exactly. It's what we do. Um, I, my, 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 my mind is just like swirling right now because there's so many, uh, so many directions that the conversation could go, but it's getting close to the end of the conversation. So I kind of want to stop myself and say, Susie Wise, is th what, what wish do you have to share with all of the folks that are listening to this conversation? I think I want to say, I, let's not squander this moment. Right. Let's not. We've seen initially with COVID, right, we saw, wow, lots of organizations can pivot and make change in different ways and we can learn and work in different ways. Let's use it then for the things that really matter. Let's use it for greater equity. Let's use it for greater participation, for hearing from people that our society and culture hasn't heard from in far too long. Let's be inspired um, by John Lewis and his passing to make right, good trouble. Um, that is the power of design, and we can use it for the things that matter most. Design matters, and Susie Wise, you matter, and I want to say thank you again very much for your time with us on the Wonder Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to talk with you. Excellent. And for all of our listeners, uh, you can hear our podcasts on all of the streaming services that you listen to podcasts on. And as, every, as with each episode, we'll have information about Susie Wives and her endeavors on our website. So please, we look forward to spending more time with you. Thank you and goodbye.